Are you sure, Gary, you just went? Of course he is sure, Mrs. Scarborough said to herself. After all, they had been on the road for two hours since leaving Anshir, and the children had been drinking water and tea. The sun was now fully up. Mrs. Scarborough suddenly felt thirsty. We'll stop soon, she promised. Just then, the tires on the bus seemed to explode. From the outside, it looked as though they had been shredded. Even extra-heavy-duty bus tires could not overcome the devastating effect of military tire rippers placed strategically in the path of the motorized coach. The bus lurched and ground to a rapid halt. For a long moment, there was silence from within while the American children and their chaperones sat stunned and confused. Elel Herzog, however, was not confused. The driver had fought in two desert wars— even before the bus's engine coughed and stopped, he was reaching for his nearby assault weapon. He had twisted the weapon from its restraining clips and turned toward the door of the bus. The door contained a window lower than all the others on the passenger vehicle, and Herzog instinctively focused on his most vulnerable flank. He was thus unprepared for the burst of auto-fire from the road on the driver's side that caught him in the back of the head and propelled his forehead and the upper half of his face across the bus, leaving an unrecognizable congealed mass of flesh clinging to the far wall of the bus. The children began screaming. The bus door flew inward, and Conrad's form filled the opening. His balaclava scarf fastened closed so that his victims might not see the face that would cause them so much pain. Out, he barked. Everybody out! Quickly, get out of the bus! His authoritative demand was supported by loud, urgent shouts from his comrades, who broke windows, pulled open the bus's emergency rear door, and climbed inside. Conrad's young commandos, still wearing petite-sized military camouflage, fired rifles through the roof of the bus and out of its windows, while screeching at children their own age to do as their leader ordered. Out of the bus, they yelled, seeming to enjoy the terror visited upon children of their own age. The Americans were roughly herded into a nearby cul-de-sac of rocks. Good God, began Mrs. Bradburn. I don't think you understand who we are. We're not Israelis. We're Americans. Shut your mouth, Conrad said evenly. I will not shut my mouth. We are... Conrad struck her on the jaw with closed fist. Mrs. Bradburn fell to the ground, dazed. She pulled herself to one knee and willed herself to rise and stand erect. The children began to cry anew as Linda rushed to Mrs. Bradburn's side. I'm all right, Mrs. Bradburn said. Conrad calmly raised a pistol, pointed it at Mrs. Bradburn's head and pulled the trigger. Hysterical children shrieked in horror. Some covered their eyes and made no sounds. Still others were shocked into total immobility. Conrad's four adult colleagues made the American women kneel while their hands were tied behind their backs. This done, the children's hands were easily tied as well. They were made to face large rocks in the cul-de-sac. All had soiled their pants. Most cried and some were too terrified to move or look. Lafie, Conrad said to one of his adult men, 
Watch closely. After today, I have other missions to accomplish. You will be on your own. Do you understand? Yes, Conrad. We are ready, Luffy said. For fifteen minutes, Conrad and his cadre coaxed, threatened, and always praised, while children killed children. At another of Conrad's commands, the small servants of the same Allah who blesses the eastern jihad against the western Satan picked up their gear, lightened now by spent ammunition, and prepared to move out back into the mountains whence they came. Conrad was the last to leave the killing grounds. He turned to one of the four remaining American souls. Kneeling slowly, gracefully, he spoke into her ear. Listen to me carefully, Mrs. Scarborough. Salvage divers will bring up pieces of Flight 280, which will have been blown up with explosives. Tell the experts to examine the area behind seat number 48A. Can you remember that, Mrs. Scarborough? Seat 48A. And tell them that more American planes will go down. Many more. Now walk. Mrs. Scarborough, take your children and walk while you can. Les Havel, vice president in charge of aviation operations for United Airlines in the UK, was roused from a deep sleep in the early morning hours. It was with a certain amount of dread that he lifted the receiver from the hook. He had learned long ago that good news never came at this time of the morning, and rarely by telephone. Yes, he rasped, propping an elbow under himself to better draw a breath of air. He promised himself once again that today was the day he would quit smoking. Mr. Havel, sir? Tony Barger here, acting supervisor for UK Air Traffic Control Western Approaches. The voice hesitated to allow Havel to respond. Havel had no idea who Barger was, but that was no matter. Yes, Mr. Barger, what is it? Havel said, a black fog of foreboding beginning to crawl across his brow. Seems that we lost contact with your flight 280 out of Kennedy. Fingers of ice clutched at Havel's entire central nervous system. The transponder faded from radar, sir. We were running up our emergency location procedure when a Norwegian freighter reported a flash in the sky at about the correct location for your aircraft, I'm afraid. Oh, God, Havel murmured. Reuters News Service was first to break the disappearance of Flight 280. Morning newspapers and television stations all over the world carried the story as its lead, many with a picture of a wide-bodied jet to set the tone of the disaster. Does this mean that the United States has been singled out for airborne terrorism? Every talking head asked every media sage. No one was willing to directly attribute the death of Flight 280's 300-plus souls to sabotage or a calculated assault on America's air fleets. 
Not even after the appearance on network and cable newscasts of Mrs. Jerry Scarborough's horrifying account of the tour bus of American children and their chaperones brutally murdered by terrorists, led by a man who not only claimed credit for downing Flight 280, but promised more air disasters to come. After all, there had been numerous claims to having sponsored Flight 280's crash from every crackpot militia and fanatical group. But when scientific tests proved incontrovertibly that UA's aircraft had been destroyed by a sophisticated explosive device, and when it could be demonstrated that the explosion had occurred at or near seat 48A, as the man who called himself Conrad had prophesied, a number of conclusions were inescapable. The first and most obvious was that further attacks might be made against United States commercial flights. The second deduction was that it was indeed Conrad, whoever he might be, who had masterminded the event. These facts instantly filled newspaper space and television news and talk shows running endless days on radio call-in programs. Security measures in and around all international airports were elevated to an extremely high level, as civil and government officials issued statements to reassure the general public. In passing weeks, the loss of Flight 280 became recalled as an isolated, albeit intentional, victory for the fanatic supporters of foreign madmen. While public relations campaigns and short memories blurred to the air disaster, as other lives were lost to famine, earthquakes, and volcanoes, those at the highest levels of government were not so sanguine. In a rural area of Virginia was an estate that had once been a horse farm. A ten-foot spiked iron fence surrounded many acres of property.